Welcome to Lectionary Mixtape. I'm your co-host, Daniel Eisenberg. And I'm your co-host, Ben Siebert. Each week, we take a look at the texts, we talk about those texts, and we offer up a very special musical offering related to those texts, our mixtape. This week, we're talking about the handsome and ruddy David, his being unsanctified and his very complicated heart. We're talking about we're talking about the connection between the sleeper and our death and how Christ calls us awake. And we're talking about the man born blind and the rehashing that we do over and over again about this same moment. The texts for the fourth Sunday in Lent come from 1 Samuel 16 verses 1 through 13, Ephesians 5 verses 8 through 14, and John chapter 9 verses 1 through 41. The first reading for the fourth Sunday in Lent comes from 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set it out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name for you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he, sac- and he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see mere see as mortal see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send him and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Then he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and he had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then sent out and went to Ramah. Hmm. Cool. <laughs> I don't know. So this is used often to talk about how, especially that line about uh, God judging the heart rather than by what we see with our eyes kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. That's nice. I like that. I think that's good. Uh, I think the text shoots itself in the foot a little bit by also managed mentioning that David was also a good looking dude. Um, Mm -hmm. it's like after going through such lengths to be like, no, God didn't choose the one who looked tall and strong and awe inspiring. Also, just in case you're wondering, David was kind of hot. You should know. (laughs) You're like, cool. Thank you. Well, and I don't know, it does kind of seem like it would serve the story better if David was like the ugly duckling to use our, you mm-hmm. know, a common cultural story. I would also say the text throws us another curve, you know, mm-hmm. like we think we know how it's exactly going to go. Like God doesn't choose the strong or the handsome or whatever. Wait, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Like God does whatever God's going to do. And maybe that's to say like, maybe the point of mentioning how he was handsome is that doesn't exactly evoke fearsome military leader, you know, like you want, I don't know, like thinking of a grizzled pirate ship captain or something like that, like with missing teeth and scars, like, yeah, that's a tough guy. And I don't know. He seems kind of like, I don't know. He's a pretty boy or something like, I don't know. Well, maybe not in the, the, yeah, but to say handsome is also to say unmarked. Like he's unscarred, untested, you know, mm-hmm. unshaped mm-hmm. by the world. You know. Okay. Yeah. I like, like that too. We take our lumps as we go through time. He's got nothing. Yeah, and God still uses even someone without all of that military experience and you know that awe-inspiring strength and whatnot. Even somebody mm-hmm. who's fresh like David. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I'll also say that um, what struck me when I was going through this text before is that uh, David is unsanctified. Jesse mm-hmm. and his whole house is sanctified for the sacrifice uh, beforehand, but David's not. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting you know, for the power of God not to be found only in the sanctified. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He he wasn't deemed to be important enough to be a part of even this sacrifice to be sanctified for that. And yet, you know, he ends up getting anointed as king. Mm-hmm. A different kind of sanctification. And yeah, it's pretty good. I've been to a couple of um, synod events for how the church can be more welcoming to LGBTQ persons, especially youth. And in one of the workshops that we talked about, we were talking about 
what are positive scripture verses, like not even just like, let's get defensive about Leviticus and Romans one and stuff like that, but what are the positive um, messages that we can say where God does in fact affirm all people and doesn't judge um, by one's gender identity or sexual orientation. Uh, And this passage comes to mind. The idea Mm. that, you know, God knows our heart, God knows, and especially in relation to gender identity, um, God knows, you know, that uh, you are in fact non-binary or you are in fact um, male and, or a, a man and not a woman or vice versa. Like, I think that can be a word of affirmation. I think that idea of God knowing our heart can be a word of affirmation, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think as we see it tied into David's story, um, it gets tricky uh, because David, this is also the David of um, the killing of Uriah and the rape of Bathsheba, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And so uh, for me, that story is always echoing throughout David's story. And there's lots of David's story that just is complicated. Um, So I don't, how do I say this? I want, it's important for when the text is being used in the way that you uh, prescribed for us to not have any implication of the sin that's also in David's heart being aligned with the, you know, this connection, you know? Sure. And that's, you know, the whole thing that God knows our heart in terms of our identity. God also knows our heart in terms of sin and all of that, and not to conflate that together. I mean, your identity isn't your sin, you know, that's, which is what some voices say. And so, yeah, absolutely. For, um, for Ash Wednesday, uh, we had the Psalm 51, Mm -hmm. uh, which is normally, um, attributed to David's, uh, response, uh, and being, you know, called out by Nathan. Mm -hmm. Um, there are, even when we see God lifting someone out, we see incredible pain caused by that person's hand too. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the story of David tells us the depth of the sinner as well as the depth of the saint. Um, and I think that's a really important, really, really important tension for us to hold today. Um, I I see much of our culture tearing down, um, at the first sign of injustice, but not really being willing to redeem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We do need, to be corrected and we do need justice. I also believe that God still loves and cares for and wishes to bring back into community the ones who are wrong. Absolutely. And I think that's part of it. I mean, talking about forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation, all of that is really good. Um, And also recognizing the ramifications of sin, that they change these relationships. Um, This whole episode starts because God has rejected Saul as king. 
um, because mm-hmm. Saul is greedy and seeks after spoils for himself and all of that, um, he can't be king anymore. Like he's going to do a lot more harm if he stays in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, so there can be forgiveness, there can be redemption, but at the same time, like things have to change too in order to protect others. Yeah. Should we jump over to Ephesians? I think it'll help. Cool. The second reading, or the fourth Sunday in Lent, comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. I like the communal aspect of this. I think often Mm. with these uh, epistle passages that give prescriptions for how you ought to live your life and all of that kind of stuff, they can become or interpreted very individualistically. Like, great, I'm just going to avoid sin, and I'm going to be good and not do any harm. Um, But this says, you know, even beyond that, also expose what's wrong, expose the sin, be like light that shines um, in order to reveal what's wrong. Uh, And I I like that. Um, Could use a little bit of warning too, like people getting on little crusades for all the quote unquote sin that they see around them and all of that. Um, So... That's probably a word of warning and things about logs in people's eyes and stuff like that might be appropriate to bring up. I think the the best confession we do in the public square is to confess our own sins. I think it is a rare case of, um, not a rare case, it is a case of justice when we need to expose the sin of another person. We do that so that the one who is being wronged or the one who is unsafe can be made safe. We don't do that for the sake of tearing down another person. Mm-hmm. There's no joy in the exposure. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe that's part of that self-reflection. If you find yourself just relishing in pointing out other people's mistakes and weaknesses and wrongdoings, then... Maybe you shouldn't be doing it. You need to look at yourself a bit about why that gives you such a thrill. Even as we say this, and I just want to play with this tension, there can be joy in things finally being brought to light that you have fought so hard to bring to light. Mm-hmm. You know, There can be joy in finally being able to say publicly the truth about something. If you're the one that's been caused pain, um, and so it's a weird line. I, I, maybe, 
maybe I was taking a bad move. Maybe I was being prescriptive in someone's emotions when the emotions are going to vary just as widely in those moments as they do everywhere else. Mm -hmm. In this text, um, I mean, the, it's end. Rise, or I mean, sleeper awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I've, in the pericope, I just found it interesting that that was this week and not next week with uh, Lazarus. Mm. It is this week with the man born blind. Um, I think that this call, sleeper awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you, is a baptismal song for us in our Lenten journey, but it's also, it's so much more gentle of a call to confession than people saying you're wrong, you should say it out loud. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? um, this is a, this is an invitation to life through death. And that, I don't know, it strikes me better. It strikes me as more fruitful than an invitation to death just because I don't like what you're doing. Oh, and it's a, it is, it's a beautiful metaphor to talk about, you know, when we are consumed by sin and selfishness and greed and um, by different vices and by apathy, if we want to bring that into the mix and everything, that it's as if we're asleep and not even living life. And like by seeing the possibilities that Christ has called us to, to bring about justice and peace and reconciliation and forgiveness and all those things that are part of the baptized life, that that's like being awake and actually living. I think that can be exciting. Yeah. I used to run um, faster and more often than I do now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in, in college, in, in cross country, um, one of the things that a coach or other people would, you know, yell to me is wake up during the race. And it was very clear that I was awake. Um, but, but in a, in a long race, you know, uh, I was in D three, uh, division three, um, in college. And so it was a eight K close to around five miles. And in a long race like that, it's easy to just kind of slip into it, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just kind of stop thinking about, striving stop paying attention to uh each part of it i mean there's so many details that go into a five mile race but like you can fall asleep at the wheel so to speak yeah um and at that point yeah you have a jersey on yeah you're running pretty fast yeah technically there's a race going on but are you racing mm -hmm. you know um and i find that our our call to be disciples of Christ is very similar. Yeah, we're in church. Yeah, yeah, we're doing the stuff. Um, but are we asleep at the wheel while we're doing it? You know, mm -hmm. are we really even trying to hear the voice of God? Are we really even racing? Yeah, what, what you're saying reminds me of the practice of mindfulness. Um, to be meditating on your presence, to really feel... Um, listen to the sounds that you hear around you, pay attention to your breathing, all of that, like recognizing that you are alive, that you are doing something, that life is happening. Uh, even like a mundane example of eating, you know, how often do you sit down, eat lunch, 
Think about the flavors that you're tasting and the textures that you're experiencing and reflect on where this food came from and how it is a blessing and the people that you're sharing with it rather than just like, I am hungry, I'm going to eat this thing that is food and just go. Um, and you don't even give a thought to it. Uh, and how can our Christian life together be something that we are mindful of, that we pay attention to what God is doing in our midst and the people that are around us and uh, all of that? I don't know. It's just what popped into my brain as you were talking about the running. From a human standpoint, though, uh, awareness, mindfulness takes a huge amount of energy. Mm -hmm. Like there's a reason at the end of the day instead of like walking through all of my things and being able to put them down well, I'm like, hey, is there TV I can watch and just like mindlessly forget things? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily in my long-term good. It still takes energy. It still takes time. And I'm nonetheless better for it afterwards. Um, yeah. And sometimes you need I'm help. Not a, yeah. 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 And like, what if we thought of our worship as a practice of mindfulness that we get together and we hear these stories of God and we recognize God's presence in our lives and we pray together and we eat and drink wine or communion together, wine and bread. Um, like how do we see that as a mindful practice? Like God is active in our lives all the time, but we set aside this time to just sit in it and just to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see and experience what God is doing. Yeah, but that's dangerous too. Like the the blinders we put on and the sleepiness that we inhabit is does protect us um, from the realities of our worship. I mean, each week we have a God who's asking us for a whole life investment. Um, and it surrounds us. And from without and from within... There are callings to be different than who we are. Mm -hmm. And if we can just sleep through the service enough where we enjoy the hymn, but don't listen to the text, mm -hmm. <laughs> then maybe we can have a experience we want separate and apart from what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So worship, it's not a given that just because you're there, it will be a mindful experience to what God is doing and calling us and all that stuff, that there requires some discipline and some work and openness to that and energy. Yeah. I mean, to use the words of Christ with Nicodemus, the wind blows where it will, and so does the spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mindfulness is a discipline, but I also think it's a gift from time to time. Yeah. Gospel time. Let's do it. All right. Our gospel reading comes from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work with the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, 
Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It is your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You are born entirely in sins, and you are trying to teach us. And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking to you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Gospel of the Lord. So a lot of pitfalls here. (laughs) Oh, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, right. I don't know, I, um, to treat, um, someone's disability as, uh, I think especially that line about, you know, 
neither him or his parents sinned, but this was done for the glory of God, um, I think has often been interpreted as a God has afflicted him with blindness so that one day people will see him healed and then many people will believe in God. It's all part of God's grand scheme. Um, Hmm. And I don't think so. I just, that's just not how God works. Um, Willy-nilly inflicting hardship on people so that God can prove a point. And we skip over, right? The very clear, very clear thing of God did not cause this because of sin. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. (laughs) Right. Like, for all the stuff that we put in one another's presence of, maybe this is happening because I sinned. Here's an instance with Christ saying very clearly, nope, not, this isn't what's happening here. Um, We also have several moments in our scripture where we assume that things are happening because of our sin. And so that's, it's difficult to say, this is a one time for all moment. But at the very least, we say not everything happens because we're sinning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What I will also add to to the last part of the phrase, um, so that the glory of God may be seen through him, it's my understanding that that's the purpose of all creation. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I think so, but I would take it even a step further to say that I think Jesus is empowering him to be an agent of the gospel. And that's why, I mean, there's even that whole play on like, hey, just in case you missed it, Siloam means sent. And so you get this whole thing of like, this guy is not just a a problem for you to solve, a conundrum to figure out, a way for us to get the right theology about God. But instead, he is a human being who was once... Uh, ostracized and set on the outskirts, dismissed as a sinner, and then restored by Jesus and given a mission. And that's empowering. That is exciting. And I think that can be, again, I, I'm this Lent, I'm leaning very much into the go get em tiger end of things. But I think that's another <laughs> go get em tiger sermon. Like, the people that we push out on the side and say they have nothing to offer and the best they can do is make us wonder about the nature of God and like see them as an object Jesus sees as real people with gifts to be shared and blessings to be shared. Yeah. Jesus sees them as the same as the rest of creation. We are all in our weakness, sharing the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to be very clear that I don't necessarily see the weakness of the blind man as whether or not he sees in the same way that I do. Mm -hmm. I see the weakness of the blind man in his humanity, in his place in society where he's not able to control what's going on around him. And that's not his fault. Weakness and fault are not the same things. I see the way that he's struggling. Yeah. To be a voice of his own regard, to have people take him seriously, to have people um, 
honestly accept the words that he's saying about who Christ is and about who he is. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is a moment of weakness for the blind man, not caused by his own fault, but nonetheless a place where the glory of God is being seen. Yeah. And the, the, the problem, the weakness is revealed to be in the way everybody treats him. It's not his yeah. problem, you know? Like, yeah. Everybody just sees him as a problem to be solved. And when that problem is solved, they don't know what to make of it. And like, it's tedious. And that, I mean, even <laughs> yeah. that, you could get a little meta about it. Like, why did we just sit there for 41 verses? Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's because this thing should feel tedious, that he has to defend himself twice and his parents. And we have to hear the little side conversations like, it's just over and over, nobody sees him as a human being with gifts to be shared and someone who has been blessed by God uh, to be a blessing for the world. And yeah, who, and I mean, I even think of uh, like, what are the ways that we do that? Uh, where we see people as problems to be solved rather than agents uh, who are blessed by God and have gifts to be shared. You know, I think of uh, a friend of, uh, not a friend, my cousin uh, just stayed with us and she's a teacher in New Orleans and she was talking about, she works with a lot of children that are uh, poor and come from uh, homes where sometimes they've suffered abuse and things like that. It's really tough and it's heartbreaking. And sometimes she gets new teachers that come in, uh, usually from like Teach for America there for a one year stint. And they've got this like savior complex, you know, they're going to come in and just identify with these kids and, you know, make them feel wonderful and just save the day. And they're Mm. treating them like objects. Uh, And so often she says that these teachers just get chewed alive because I mean, kids can smell BS from a mile away and they can tell when you don't care about them, you just care about the idea of them. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is calling us into genuine relationship. Oh yeah. And I'll say the same thing can be said for a congregation and pastors who just see them as a means of doing the ministry. They always envision themselves doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You will get chewed alive in that approach. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, it is I, I like that point you said about the thing the things being tedious. I mean, inside 41 verses, we rehash three or four or even five times this same topic. Like you've got to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. And and it's maybe the I'm finding, you know, the glory of God in that, in the way that all of a sudden, you know, I don't see anybody who's born blind um, being given sight in my midst, but I see the rehashing being done a lot. I see the conversation being done a lot, mm-hmm. which isn't a conversation about, you know, how are you no longer blind? The conversation is whether or not this is God. Mm-hmm. Can God truly be seen in this person? Like, that's the conversation. Yeah, there. Uh, I was. I went to a conference uh, led by Paul Hoffman a couple weeks ago, and he pointed something out about this text that's both stuck in my mind, and I don't really know if it's fruitful or what to do with it. Um, but he pointed out to a fourth-century uh, tradition from Saint Basil. Basil. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I read his name all the time. I don't necessarily know how to say his name. Um, 
but uh but apparently there's a tradition at one point where this man was named and uh they called him Celadonius. Uh and the tradition was that he was a man born without eyes. Not necessarily mm. a man born blind, but um that the place where there would be eyeballs there was nothing. Hmm. And then to play around with that as um the very essence of God um seen in Christ to have something come out of his mouth, both breath and spit, and to once again move over a formless, shapeless void and to find creation. Hmm. I think it's beautiful. And I also think that it can be problematic. And I also think that it maybe isn't anywhere in the text. And so it's just kind of this neat little rabbit trail. <laughs> mm -hmm. but, uh, but I don't know. I've been thinking about that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Even just the fact that he has a name in that tradition. I like that. Yeah. A name directly related to his sight or not, nonetheless. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, you have anything else on this one or should we mixtape it? Uh, I will capstone this section by saying that with the text so long and so dynamic, it's sometimes difficult to know what to preach on. Yeah. And even inside you and I's conversation, I've found depth in it. And also I can point to so many other things and say like, why are we talking about that? <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and, like, and, you know, if you find those places, oh, for them. just, yep. you know, yeah. You're not going to be able Much to preach like, on everything in 41 verses. So just yeah. pick something, pick a theme, pick a verse, and just lean in. Yeah. Well, and much, much like Sunday mornings, we have a limited time and we can't cover everything. <laughs> yep. So this is what we did. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Ben, that reminds me of a song. Nice. Well, uh, is it all right if I go first? Go for it. All right. So the song that I have chosen for our mixtape is Amanda Palmer's Runs in the Family. Uh, I like that, especially with the uh, Celadonius was his name. Is that right? Uh, according to tradition? Yeah. Oh, Celadonius, so yeah. or the man who was born blind. Um, the fact that everybody blames sin on him. This is his own fault. This is a sign that God has forsaken him. Uh, and this song really runs into that, like the struggles that we have with our family legacy, plays with the idea of uh, genetics and also sort of history and things like that. Um, and I like that. He's really struggling with this perception um, that uh, he or his parents are sinful and therefore even more easily dismissed, uh, that that's a way that he is ignored. Um, and 
I really like uh, the line that goes, Mary, have mercy. Now look what I've done, but don't blame because I can't help where I come from. Running is something that we've always done well, and mostly I can't even tell what I'm running from. Run from their pity, run from responsibility, run from the country and run from the city. I can run from the law. I can run from myself. I can run from my life. I can run into debt. I can run from it all. I can run into um, gone. I can run for the office and run for my cause. I can run using every last ounce of energy. I cannot, I cannot, I cannot run from my family. I can tell where I come from and running is something that we've always done well and mostly I can't even tell what I'm running from. Run from the pity, from responsibility, run from the country and run from the city. I can run from the law, I can run from myself, I can run from my life, I can run into debt, I can run from it all, I can run till I'm gone, I can run from the It's really good. It's a very Amanda Palmer E. If you've listened to the Dresden Dolls or any of her work, just like kind of a little bit of uh, a little bit of angst, and it's kind of punchy, and it's good. Yeah, I, I, in a place where even throughout the speaking about the gospel, we stayed in a very kind of macro meta place where we're we're just looking at the overall themes and movements i like how the song puts us in it mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah. and i think it's something people can identify with you know yeah uh, the expectations that are placed on you because of how people have defined you whether it be through your family or through an illness or through your age or through your gender or whatever it is it's like constantly fighting against that so what'd you choose what's your track <laughs> yeah so i went with the judge by 21 pilots um it's a it's a neat little kind of uh piece and it goes through kind of this winding moment of um kind of like your song self-identification um it talks a lot about how uh, the singer sings, uh, sees themselves, how the world sees themselves. Um, and in the, uh, the bridge, uh, it just kind of repeats over and over. Um, I don't know if this song is a surrender or a revel. I don't know if this one is about me or the devil. And it repeats that a few times and goes back into the chorus. You're the judge. Oh no, set me free. multiple moves that we have in the bridge and in the chorus is where I feel this kind of uh, it's the two poles that create the vortex that we find in this text you know it's the reason we're rehashing things over and over again we don't know if this is something to revel or if we're just caving and we don't know uh, if this song is about us or the devil 
We don't know uh, what's happening, but we have seen something powerful. And when we realize that this is the judge, not that that's my favorite name for Christ, but sometimes accurate, depending on the text. Mm-hmm. When we realize who this is, we both have oh no on our lips and set me free on our lips. Mm. Um, it's a vulnerable place, but we immediately realize the power to graciously give us life too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very nice. That duality of it all. Yeah. Well? Well? <laughs> wow. That was a dramatic really well pause. Time. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, that's well, going to do it for us uh, over here at Lectionary no Mixtape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for spending time with us. We hope uh, the content was much more useful than what we just produced right here. Um, but I look forward to speaking with you all next time as well. Yeah. Take care. Bye. <laughs> we'll see you later. <laughs>